almost everyone in our culture values human life. We often hear slogans like Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, or Trans Lives Matter. And what we don't hear are slogans like No Lives Matter. Everyone in our culture values human life, but what many people don't realize is that these values can only be grounded or be objectively true if God exists. And if what I just said surprises you, then I think you should stick around and listen to this podcast episode where I am going to explain the moral argument for God's existence and show how it is defended. Welcome back. In this lecture, I'm going to be talking about the moral argument for God's existence. In the last one, we talked about uh, the debate over moral relativism and moral objectivism. And that, le- that last lecture actually is going to be very helpful for our purposes here. Because in this one, like I said, we will be talking about the moral argument for God's existence. And it is going to, um, it is going to argue that moral values and duties are objective so this is uh, so that last lecture will be helpful if you haven't already um, heard that one or seen that one go ahead and go back to the last one and check that out but yeah if you've been following this series we usually talk about a bible verse before we get started the bible verse for these these couple lectures uh, the last one and this one has been romans 2 verses 14 through 15 which says, So, when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them. Which is a really great passage for uh, what we're thinking about right now. I, I did say a few words about what this passage means in the last lecture so if you'd like to hear that go ahead and go back to that if you haven't already heard it Um, we've also been doing questions for reflections throughout this series and I've got a handful here one thing I think I've forgotten to mention um, throughout the series is that some of these questions for reflection um, I made up myself but also some of them um, are are some of the questions that I asked my students in in the apologetics class that I taught in person and some of them actually come from the Grotice text like uh, I'm not saying the question itself came from the text but uh, the question can be found in the text so if you're following along um, it with the Doug Grotice uh, Dr. Douglas Grotice uh, apologetics Christian apologetics book with this series uh, you can actually see some of these answers in there if you're reading the relevant chapters that uh, cover this stuff that's um, parallel to what we are covering in the series. But anyways, the uh, questions for reflection for this uh, lecture are, can the impersonal God of pantheism be the grounding for objective morality? If you're familiar with what pantheism is, it's the uh, view that says God is the world. Uh, So why or why not? Can the impersonal God of pantheism be the grounding for objective morality? Why or why not? 
Does atheistic moral realism have a problem similar to pantheism regarding the grounding for objective morality? Um, I'll mention what atheistic moral realism is uh, in this lecture. Uh, our, our last couple of questions are, is the Euthyphro dilemma a true dilemma, or is there a third option that theists can choose? If you don't already know what the Euthyphro dilemma is, we'll talk about that in this lecture. And the last question is, even in moral, even if moral duties were objective brute facts in the universe, would we be obligated to obey them if God does not exist? Why or why not? Okay. Um, but let, let's uh, go ahead and get started with the moral argument. So usually, as you know, if you've seen the other videos or podcasts in this series, when I touch on a specific argument for God's existence, like the design arguments or cosmological arguments, I stop and show several different types of arguments before I go into one argument in depth. Um, the moral argument is actually like that. You, uh, It's been argued for, uh, for a while now in Western philosophy. I mean, even as far back as Plato, uh, Plato argued that there must be some highest good to make sense out of, out of all other goods. But Plato is making more of a metaphysical argument than a moral argument. Um, these, these moral arguments, especially like the one I'm going to uh, discuss in this lecture, um, really start to be more prominent uh, around uh, modern times in, in modern philosophy in, in the West. So if you remember uh, Immanuel Kant, who I talked about in the uh, lecture over the Kalam argument, um, some of his thought, well, he argued in his writings that we just can't, we can't know about things that are beyond our senses. So uh, Kant definitely was someone who didn't believe you could know that God exists. But interestingly enough, whenever Kant, Immanuel Kant, uh, starts arguing, uh, starts doing moral philosophy, one thing he argues is that to make sense out of morality whatsoever, we have to just assume, we have to believe that something like God exists. Otherwise, uh, it, our morality wouldn't make any sense. And then, you know, following him, there's philosophers like William Sorley, uh, who lived in the 18, late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, who, who made formulations of the moral argument. Uh, this the moral argument also became pretty popular with uh, uh, because, and, and, and more famous in popular culture because of um, C.S. Lewis, he, he wrote something uh, similar to the moral argument. And recently, uh, especially this version here, it has been argued and defended by Christian philosophers like William Lane Craig and Paul Copan. So there, I just want to mention that there are different formulations of the moral argument, but um, and maybe I'm just biased because I haven't dug deeply into the debate um, as, as much as other philosophers have. But I, to me, they just all seem to really, I don't, they're not all the same, okay? Definitely there's differences, but I, I just, uh, I just like to just show this one. It, this is the main one that um, uh, Christian philosophers are defending these days. So, so I wasn't going to show several other moral arguments. Um, they all, I mean, honestly, they all pretty much make the same conclusion. They just argue for it in, in various uh, small different ways. So um, here's our moral argument that we are defending. And as you can see from my citation at the bottom there, I'm taking this from William Lane, Cur William Lane Craig's Reasonable Faith, uh, his book, Reasonable Faith. So 
Premise 1 says, if God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. 2. Objective moral values and duties do exist. 3. The conclusion is, therefore, God exists. Okay? And, uh, you know, it's a very simple argument, and it's, it's, a, it's a, a logical argument. It's a valid argument. Uh, it's basically saying, if God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. Objective moral values and duties do exist, okay? Um, therefore, God exists. So, but if God does not exist, objective moral and values, uh, moral values and duties would not exist. But since they do exist, that means that God does exist. Um, now, before I start to discuss how we would defend premise one and premise two of this logical argument... I do want to discuss a little bit about our terms and then um, clear up a common misconception, okay? So whenever I talk about moral values and moral duties, what are we talking about? A moral value is whether or not something is good or bad, okay? Um, and then a moral duty is whether or not some act is either right or wrong, permissible or impermissible. So... You know, something something can have value, but not really have a duty involved with it. But a lot of times our, our duties follow from our values, right? So an obvious case is, is the idea that human life has value. Um, it, it is important, and, and a human being has uh, some intrinsic goodness to, to him or her. Uh, so, so from that goodness... Uh, there we have duties that follow. So because human life has value, um, it is wrong to murder somebody, for example, right? But then you can have things that are good, but not necessarily uh, duties follow from that. So like it is good to own a pet, but that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, it is right or wrong for you to own a pet. Um, it's permissible, but uh, it also doesn't mean you have a duty to do it. It's just something that's good. But anyways, um, hopefully you've gotten the idea. Value is whether something is good or bad, has some intrinsic value to it. Moral duties are actions that are either right or wrong, permissible or impermissible. Okay, so that, but that's what we're talking about when we say that moral values and duties are objective. Um, you know, hopefully you've already gotten this uh, objective subjective distinction down from the last lecture. When we say that objective moral values and duties do exist in premise two. What we are saying is that, for example, the statement "it is wrong to murder," that is that is a statement that is closer to the type of a, like a mathematical statement where the the truth of it is doesn't matter about what your opinion is. If you think it's okay to murder, you're just wrong, and it doesn't matter what your opinion is. Doesn't matter what race, ethnicity, gender, or, or anything about you. It doesn't matter where you're from, who you are. What time you live in, if you think it's okay to murder, then you're just objectively wrong, right? So that's what we're getting at. Now, there are some common misconceptions with this argument, okay? Similar to the Kalam argument where people think, well, if everything has a cause, then what caused God, right? Well, it's it's similar with this argument. So a lot of, uh, it's, not, it's not rare for uh, an atheist hearing this argument to get upset, and the reason is, is because for some reason, some people see this argument and they think that what we're talking about is that you can't be good without God. Like you can't perform good actions unless you believe that God exists. 
like like uh, like something's wrong with you mentally if you don't believe in God. Okay, um, or, or some people think that you can't even. What this is saying is that you can't even use terms like good or bad without a reference to God. But that's that's not what this argument is saying. Okay. Um, similar to our Bible passage up here where it says the Gentiles don't have the law, but they still follow this moral law that's written on their hearts. Um, this, uh, this argument is not saying that you have to believe in God to, to be a good person. What this argument is saying is that it's, this argument is more about the grounding of the objectivity of morality. Okay. Uh, of course, an atheist can can do good things because, as human beings, we know the difference between right and wrong. Uh, so, so uh, it, this isn't saying that you have to believe in God to do good things. Okay, it is just saying that unless God exists, morality cannot be objective. That's all it's saying. Okay. Um, now let's talk about how you would defend premise one. So, if you remember, premise one says if God does not exist. Objective moral values and duties do not exist. I think one of the um, easiest ways to kind of bring out premise one, why this is the case, is if you just assume, you know, just uh, th- just picture a world in which God doesn't exist. Okay, so if this world exists, um, then everything in that world is going to have formed. You know, if that's even possible, I, I'm, you know, we've already uh, discussed cosmological arguments where we don't even think worlds like ours would be, and and design arguments where we don't even think worlds like ours would be possible without God. But imagine a world in which everything is completely random, but there are things that exist somehow. Now, if if life were to form in this world somehow, um, it would be purposeless, right? Um, and you kind of see my slide here it says naturalism entails that our planet and all life formed accidentally for no purpose. So if something forms for no reason by accident, uh, then it, and it doesn't have a purpose, then how can you say that it has value, right? Uh, if you just imagine all pretend that all life on our planet evolved for no reason by accident, that wouldn't. Uh, even if you still thought that everything did have value, let's say you couldn't, um, there wouldn't really be relative value uh, or or ultimate value at all, right? Like, um, for example, if everything formed by accident, think about how we think that human beings have value um, over animals. Like we, we give human beings more rights than we do animals and humans can own animals. But uh, if everything formed by accident, then human beings actually wouldn't have any more value above uh, animals. But honestly, uh, if everything uh, rose by accident, then nothing would have value. I think one of my favorite uh, quotes to bring out this uh, point comes from William Lane Craig. And uh, I'll just go ahead and read what he says. In Reasonable Faith, page 173, He says, if theism is false, why think that human beings have objective moral value? After all, in the naturalistic view, there's nothing special about human beings. They're just accidental byproducts of nature, which have evolved relatively recently on an infinitesimal speck of dust called the planet Earth, lost somewhere in a hostile and mindless universe in which are doomed to perish individually and collectively in a relatively short time. 
You know, if we think that we have value, but ultimately, if God does not exist, we are here for no reason. We have no objective purpose, and we are destined to die along with the rest, with, with the earth and the rest of the solar system and the rest of the galaxy. So ultimately, we have no purpose. Ultimately, we are worthless. Okay. Um, so you can you can talk about moral value. Um, another thing you can talk about if uh, everything was completely random is there would be also be no moral duties, right? Um, when we think about you know kind of like what I said earlier, if everything formed by accident, human beings have no higher value than animals do. Similarly, if everything formed by accident, really. Um, None of our actions, there would be no ought to our actions. We can do things that can help us survive. We can do things that can help other people. But none of these things would be objectively the correct thing to do, the moral thing to do, the right thing to do, right? Um, because, and when you think about it, when we look in the animal kingdom and we see a lion killing a gazelle, do we go, oh, that lion needs to be put away for murder? No, we don't because it's just it's just one animal uh, getting ahead and doing what it was made to do. Well, uh, human beings can have the ability to kill each other, so uh, why not? You know, it, it's just one uh, one uh, animal getting ahead over another. So uh, there really would be no objective reason why you couldn't just go out and do whatever you want uh, because there would be no objective thing grounding the rightness or the wrongness of your actions if you're here for uh for no reason whatsoever. Um, especially, you know, when you think about, uh, even atheists actually uh, make this point. For example, I have a quote from a uh, evolutionary biologist and uh, philosopher of science, uh, Michael Ruse. Uh, he says in, uh, in, in a chapter he wrote, in a book called The Darwinian Paradigm, he says morality is a biological adaptation no less than our hands and feet and teeth. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction has no being beyond or without this. So yeah, atheists admit that if there is no God, there can be no morality. If everything came for, uh, if everything, if all life on our planet formed for no reason by accident, Everything is guided by the laws of nature. Everything is guided by natural selection. So even our idea that we ought to help our neighbor really, uh, like Michael Ruse says, is just uh, kind of this herd mentality that we evolved over the years. Um, you know, one tribe of early humans helped each other out. And this was a trait that was selected for because the tribes, of the groups of humans that helped each other survived better than the groups of humans who didn't help each other so this this herd mentality where we all kind of pull together as a team to survive the the atheist the evolutionary well you know just because you're an evolutionist doesn't make you uh, an atheist but the the atheist will say uh the naturalist let's say will say that <clears throat> uh yes our moral our the, our morality that we perceive in the world is just something that evolved to help us survive. It's not objective. It's just a byproduct of evolution. Okay. Um, so, uh, 
so yeah, that, that's another, that's how you would defend premise one. Okay. Um, another way to talk about it though, you don't have to just talk about if, uh, if God didn't exist, uh, or excuse me, you don't have to just talk about how the, the world and all life formed. Another way to think about it, if God didn't exist, is just to think about what would ground our morality. The thing is, uh, monotheists, Christians, argue that, uh, for premise one, if God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist, okay? And and a major reason why that we say that is because God is thought to be this all-good, all-powerful, all-knowing being, okay? And uh, so, for one, God is thought to be the being who created the universe, created human beings for a specific purpose, okay? So that gives, uh, because human beings were created for a specific purpose and because God values us, that gives us objective value and that gives us an objective purpose. And because we have an objective purpose, there is a right or wrong way for us to act. We either act towards that objective purpose that has been given to us or we act away from that purpose. And that and if we're acting towards it, that is good. If we're acting away from it, that is bad. Does that make sense? Because you ought to act in the way God wants you to act because you have an objective purpose that you need to fulfill. Now, and because God is all all good, we can trust that God is a good judge and will we'll, uh, never judge partially uh, and will never go back on his word. And the law, the moral law of the universe is, is a just law. Because God is all-powerful, God can punish every wrongdoing of the moral law. And because God is all-knowing, God knows every instance and every, uh, every instance of the breaking of the moral law. Okay. Also, God knows when you do good things, so you can be rewarded. If there was no such being, uh, and there, and we were here for no reason, there would be no higher authority above mankind to determine mankind's value and to determine mankind's purpose. Okay. So if if every you know, even if if God doesn't exist, and even if every human being on the planet agreed that murder was wrong, that still would just be everyone's subjective opinion. Because who's to say that we're correct, that murder is something you ought not to do? That would just, does that make sense? Because if God, if, if human beings haven't been given an objective purpose and uh, have objective value, then morality can be nothing but subjective like your taste in food. I think it's wrong to murder, but you might not think it's wrong to murder. And who's to say one of us is right over the other? Um, so that's another way that you can show people that premise one makes sense. And it's just true. If God does not exist, moral values and duties cannot be objective. Okay. They can only be subjective, like uh, just your opinion on, on how you ought to act. Okay. So, uh, and, and towards the end of this lecture, I'm going to talk about objections and we'll, we'll show you how to answer those. Okay. Now, moving on to premise two, though, let's talk about what premise two is and, and how to defend it. So premise two says objective moral values and duties do exist. Now, this is one reason why I covered the debate over moral objectivism and relativism so much when defending the truth of premise two that objective moral values do exist you can actually go back to that last lecture and look at all the arguments we used for uh, objective morality and against moral relativism and you can use all of those to defend the truth of premise two so in that last lecture i talked about 
the argument from the is-ought distinction, the objection from the exaggeration of cultural diversity, the argument from the acceptability of moral, obvious moral wrongs, which is one of my favorites, and the argument from the impossibility of moral advancement, which is another one of my favorites. You can also point out the reformer's dilemma, some forms of ethical relativism are self-defeating. Okay, so if you're interested in that, you haven't seen that, uh, some of those arguments for uh, objective morality and against ethical relativism, go back to that last lecture and check that out. But there's also other ways that you can uh, defend the truth of premise two, that objective moral values and duties do exist, okay? Um, and, I, and this is actually something that we talked about in our, in our last lecture as well. But it really just boils down to it. So you're just trying to show someone that objective morality, objective values do exist, so what we're saying is that these are values that we discover about the world. This is just the way the world is. It's not opinions that we have, okay? And you can just ask someone, okay, so you're, you know, if someone says, I don't think that premise two is true. I think that moral values and duties are just subjective. You can ask them, okay, so, but think about what you're saying. So as far as values go, you can ask them if they have children, especially, this, is, this would be a great one. Do you think that your children have value objectively and so beyond your opinion do you think your children are worth something and i would find it i'm i would hope that you wouldn't find a parent who could answer a no to that um but it doesn't have to be someone who has kids maybe they have parents and you know parent-child relationship is so strong um but, but it's not just this strong bond we have. It's just, a, you know, just spending so much time with another human being, whether it's a family member or a friend. We just we just come to know the goodness of another human. And hopefully, with hope if not with family, at least with friends or vice versa. But just, you know, spending time with another human being, you just get to know the goodness and the intrinsic value of human beings. So if someone doesn't have kids, they, I'm sure they have parents. And you can ask them, do your parents have value beyond your opinion? And again, I hope they wouldn't say no. Um, uh, now, in our culture, though, I mean, you, you name it. I've heard so many slogans recently, and I'm not saying I disagree with them. I'm just saying that it is so obvious that our culture does place value in human life. Uh, I mean, just think about some of the slogans. Uh, Black lives matter. Trans lives matter. Uh, blue lives matter. You know, uh, one slogan you don't hear in the media or, or on TV is no lives matter, right? No one's saying that because no one believes that. Uh, e even when you talk about things like the abortion debate where one side, uh, one side is, uh, you know, one side is saying that it's, it's wrong to kill uh, a fetus because it's a human being. Obviously, they value human life. But the other side, pro-choice, they're saying that a woman's right to choose. But, but how could you have a right unless you were valuable in some way, right? Ethics says that because we uh, have free will, because we are able to determine our actions, we have value. And because of that value, we have uh, rights that uh, other people are obligated to. Uh, other people have a duty to, uh, to, not, uh, um, to not violate, right? So even a pro-choice person, and again, I'm not saying pro-choice people are necessarily bloodthirsty or anything like that but even a pro-choice person is saying that human life has value because they're talking about the value of a woman and uh, her right to choose uh, to 
to have an abortion, okay? You can't have a right if you're not valuable and you can't, uh, um, um, well, you know, I guess maybe unless they just think the government arbitrarily gives out rights. But anyways, so th- those are ways to defend premise two. Uh, that's thinking about values. Now, another way is to, is to look at duties. And I think maybe this one, if you can't get them to say yes to some of these last ones with values, maybe you can get them to say yes with the, the duties portion. Because this goes back to our uh, obvious moral wrongs argument that I talked about in the last lecture. Uh, again, I think this is one of the most powerful ones you can use. So if, if someone doesn't believe that moral and values and duties are objective, then he or she is going to have to, be, have to uh, admit that some people's actions, no matter how heinous, actually weren't wrong. Because remember, if morality is subjective, then nobody is right or wrong in their moral judgments on other people's beliefs, right? I have my moral values. If I think it's wrong to murder, then I ought not to murder uh, because of my own moral code. But that doesn't mean that uh, someone else who thinks it's okay to kill people for no reason, that doesn't mean they're wrong. That's their moral beliefs. It's like, it's like taste in food. You, I like Chinese food. You like barbecue the best. But that doesn't mean we're wrong in our beliefs because we're making statements more about ourselves than the, than the food, right? It's the same with morality. So if, if, if someone denies that morality is, uh, that moral duties are objective, he or she must also admit that other people um, were not doing things that were wrong if they believed what they're doing was right, right? So one thing you can do to ask them if they are denying premise two is say, okay, so do you think it is wrong to torture children? Hopefully they're going to say no, but then you just need to say, okay, but if it's subjective, that means that's just your opinion. And if somebody came to the town square today or whatever and started torturing a child, there's, we, uh, we, we would be wrong to stop them because if they believe that's okay, then that's just okay for them. Or the same thing with rape, especially in our culture to talk about slavery and racism. Do you think slavery and racism are wrong, right? Uh, if they think that morality is subjective, then they can't say that the people in the South, or well, in the North too, right? People in uh, uh, antebellum uh, United States, right, in in the times of slavery, uh, th- they weren't wrong because they believed slavery was okay. Uh, if someone thinks it's subjective, then they have to admit that 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 was okay for those people. You can talk about mass murderers, <laughs> like Joseph Stalin. Uh, Mao or Adolf Hitler, if if morality is subjective, then then Adolf Hitler did nothing wrong, uh, Mao did nothing wrong, Stalin did nothing wrong. Um, you know, it might be against someone's moral code, their subjective beliefs about morality, but that doesn't mean that what they did was objectively wrong, right? Maybe if you have a, <laughs> you know, maybe if you know someone in your family or you yourself. Uh, don't like Donald Trump. If you think that morality is subjective, then you ha- you can't say that uh, that Trump did anything wrong. He everything he did, he thought was the moral thing to do. Uh, maybe he did a few things that he knew were wrong. <laughs> but um, but that's that's how we defend premise two. Okay, uh, moral values and duties do exist. Everyone acts like it, even if they don't say that they believe in it. So hopefully everyone can be honest and and just and give in to that premise too. 
Uh, but that's the problem, right? So be, well, the problem for someone who doesn't want to believe in God. Uh, what the conclusion for this argument is, is that therefore God exists, right? If uh, if moral values and if God does not exist, then moral values and duties do not exist. But moral values and duties do exist, therefore God exists. Okay, you can see how this is di- different from our cosmological arguments. With our cosmological arguments, we're we're pointing out uh, features of the universe and then kind of following that metaphysically back to God, saying that God must be grounding this and causing this. Um, the moral argument is slightly different. It, uh, it is pointing out something in the universe, but it's pointing out this, uh, this abstract concept that we see. Uh, and... and it, you like for example when we talk about why is it wrong to murder people why is it wrong to torture babies i mean we can talk about all day about all these reasons for why that's wrong uh, i can come up with all these uh reasons for why it's wrong using all the moral theories but also um kind of thinking back to that that bible verse we, a lot of this is just really intuitive knowledge. I mean, it's uh, the the fact that it's wrong to torture a baby. Um, if someone is 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 healthy uh, physically and, and mentally, it's just going to be self evident that that's wrong, right? Uh, so it's but it's really interesting because this is more like a transcendental argument. That's that's why Kant had to use this argument because he didn't think that we could prove that God exists. But he said, look, if if God doesn't exist and our morality is not objective, there's 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 no objective reason to say you ought to do one thing above another. Uh, so it's this transcendental argument that says if we 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 see uh, objective morality in our lives in our hearts, uh, but that wouldn't that just would be an illogical thing to believe in unless we also believe in God only. Only, only believing that God exists, or, or, or another, or another way of putting it is that, uh, yeah, if God did not exist, then that shouldn't be a thing. But since it is a thing that we see in reality, therefore God must also exist. So, an interesting argument. Um, but just remember, it's not saying that um, people who don't believe in God are bad people. It's not saying that people who don't believe in God can't act in good ways. It's saying that to be logically consistent. If you think morality is objective or that humans have value or anything else has value objectively, then you must also believe that God exists if you want to stay logically consistent, like I said. Another way you can go about it is to say, you know, maybe they don't have a problem with saying that objective morality is a thing, but they don't believe in God. You can turn it the other way around and say, well, what this argument shows is that you can't have one without the other. Maybe you do believe in objective morality, but you need to realize that if God, if you think God doesn't exist, then you can't think that morality is objective. So, so either one, they emphasize that they can't have, can't have one without the other. Okay, so let's, well, let's talk about the objections to the moral argument. Okay, uh, looking at premise one: if God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. Like I said, with premise one. This has actually been uh, conceded by many atheists. Uh, many atheists throughout Western philosophy and others have argued themselves that, well, a lot of times they don't say if God does not exist, then uh, objective moral values do, do not exist. They'll say, 
in their writings usually something like because God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. But also you saw that people like Michael Ruse and others who who believe that um, natural selection is the only game in town, they'll just matter of factly state that yes, our our views of morality have just been evolved. There's nothing more to it than that. Okay. Now, but having said that, some people have tried to ground morality outside of God, okay? So you won't always just get someone uh, just agreeing with premise one. Some people do object to it. And there's been uh, many different ways that people have tried to ground morality uh, in the history of Western thought. Uh, there's, But usually, because uh, they're trying to ground morality and make it objective, they have to ground morality in some natural thing. If they're not grounding it in God, they have to ground it in some natural thing. And if they, what they'll do is they'll try to ground it in everyone's, um, in some psychological thing like happiness or everyone's desires or what everyone else thinks is good. Or they'll, or they'll ground it in some uh, physical thing like um, the avoidance of pain is good. Uh, human flourishing is good and things like that. Okay. Um, you know, especially secular humanists uh, usually want to keep some moral code and they will usually argue that morality is grounded in human flourishing or something like it is good to it is bad to feel pain so it is good to avoid pain and it is it is good and it's bad to hurt other people so so that you usually see things like this or if you've ever heard someone just in out in our regular culture say something like "Do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt somebody," that would be, that would be some similar along those lines, okay? But there's there's problems with this objection, okay? Um, this idea that uh, morality is grounded in people's desires or something uh, physical has been known to be problematic in professional philosophy, in in meta ethics. Uh, for a while. So here's some issues. Now, if someone wants to ground or, or if someone wants to just say that um, our, our ideas of right and wrong are coming from natural selection, well, there's a problem with this. Uh, the, the problem is, remember, uh, moral duties are saying how you ought to act. But now if, our, if our herd mentality evolved, it evolved to help us survive. Uh, but but why? But uh, there's two things about this. For one, why does it matter if we survive if the universe is going to be blotted out after a while, anyways, or, or the the this you know the sun will overtake the earth and any number of things. Uh, if we're all going to eventually die, then why does any of this matter? We have no purpose. We shouldn't really have anything that we ought to do. But two, uh, even with this herd mentality, the thing is the universe doesn't care if we flourish or not. Why is why is flourishing a good thing? Why is it? Why is human? Why do humans have value? We we shouldn't have value if, because we're here for no reason, right? And even if we're talking about this is a product of evolution, well, evolution, the universe, uh, natural selection, none of that cares if we survive or not. <clears throat> but even if you did think that maybe there was some, you know, God doesn't exist. This is all. Uh, We've evolved the ability to feel pain. Pain is bad, so let's avoid it. Let's let's uh, let's just all uh, do things that are condu- conducive to human flourishing. But 
apart from so this idea uh, our you know the naturalists are say our, our morality came from this herd mentality but guess what we're not we're not in those times anymore maybe there was a time when it was uh helpful to us to band together as a team but now we live in uh different times um we're not uh, fending off animals or invaders every day now. So in, in my life today, I don't necessarily have to band together with anybody to flourish. Uh, but even then, the thing is, who's flourishing are we talking about? Sometimes, um, sometimes an act that I do might help somebody else, but not, might not help me flourish. But if human flourishing is just like the basis of, of your goodness here, uh, it really leaves you with all these gray areas where it's hard to determine what you should do. Why does it matter whether one person survives over the next? Is it my flourishing that I should be worried about? Uh, that's, that's flourishing, but I can do things to make me flourish that will cause other people to not flourish, right? But what about my neighbors? What about all humanity? Uh and, and what would be the objective basis for that we use to choose who should flourish and who shouldn't? So uh, it really, again, you kind of see how this, uh, it just it shows that if you think that morality is something that we're just going to figure out on our own, it just becomes a subjective process. Another thing, too, though, is I think one of the most, um, the, the biggest objections to trying to ground morality in something natural is is something called the open question objection, okay? The thing is, when people try to ground things in human happiness, uh, what everyone finds valuable or, or what everyone desires or the avoidance of pain or uh, human flourishing. Let's, let's take human flourishing as an example. The thing is, it's always an open question. Well, here's how the objection goes. If it's an open question as to whether or not that thing is good, then... Uh, it, you wouldn't think that then it seems to be obvious that that thing isn't intrinsically good. Uh, and let me, let me, let me explain. So take the question, um, is, is justice good? If you asked, what if everybody in the world acted justly? Would it be an open question as to whether the world would be a good place or not? And the answer would be, no, it wouldn't be an open question. If everyone acted justly, then the world would be a better place. Now, ask yourself, now take the same question. What if everyone flourished? Would it be obvious that the world is going to be a good place? And I would tell you that it's not going to be obvious. In fact, if everyone flourished, um, you know, it just from everyone flourishing doesn't necessarily show that everyone is going uh that that's going to be a good, just world, right? Maybe everyone is flourishing because one or two people killed everybody else off. I mean, just think about what human flourishing has brought about. Um, is human flourishing a good thing? Well, let's think about this. Would it have been good for the Nazis to flourish? No, millions more people would have died. Um, what about things that come from human flourishing, like atom bombs? What if everyone flourished so much that we took up all the resources on the planet Earth and we all died? So human flourishing itself doesn't seem to be an intrinsic good. Uh, or, or let's say this. I mean, I would say obviously human flourishing is good, but it can't be the basis for a, an object of morality. Okay, there's more. There's more to it than that. So, so saying that human flourishing is the basis for morality 
doesn't work. Okay. Now, there's been other objections to premise two, so let's talk about those. Objective moral values and duties do exist as premise two. This is where we're just trying to point out that in, in reality, we do see objective moral values and duties. Now, uh, we already saw some objections to this in the last lecture over the debate on moral relativism, moral objectivism. So if you remember, there was the argument from cultural diversity, the argument from the untenability of ethical objectivism, and the argument from cognitive relativism. So if you're interested in, in those arguments and how they're answered, you can go back to the last lecture. Uh, but that also is not, those are also not the only arguments that people will bring against uh, this premise too, that objective moral values and duties do exist, okay? Especially there's this one objection. So I mentioned that with premise one, if God does not exist, moral values and duties do not exist. Um, a lot, or maybe some atheists will say, or some naturalists will say, yes, I agree with premise one. A lot of time, like I said, they believe in that. They believe in premise one because they just know that it naturally follows that if God doesn't exist, then these things don't exist. But they'll they'll take this and they'll take they'll take this belief and they'll use it as an objection to premise two. They'll say, but because God doesn't exist, and in fact, uh, objective moral values and duties don't exist. Our our moral beliefs are merely the byproduct of evolutionary processes. So you're trying to tell me that what the atheist or the naturalist is going to tell you is that you aren't correct to say you can't have one premise one and two. What I was saying when I was defending premise one is that they can't have both. They can't believe in objective morality, but also believe that God exists. What what they're trying to say is that given what we know from science, that you can't have premise two. And they say, you can't believe number two because your moral beliefs are a herd mentality. They're merely the byproduct of evolutionary processes, so they can't be objective. Um, you don't believe that murder is wrong because it objectively is wrong. You believe that because that's something you, your ancestors evolved so they could survive. Okay, But let me, let me show you uh, how you can answer that objection. Okay, So... There's a couple things wrong here. First of all, uh, this objection that our moral beliefs are a pro byproduct of evolutionary processes, therefore, um, that means that uh, we can't believe in objective morality, is actually a... Uh, it's committing... If someone uses that as an objection, he or she is committing what's called the genetic fallacy. Okay? The genetic fallacy is a logical fallacy where someone points out the source of a belief and then says that because that's the source of the belief, everything that person is arguing is false, okay? This is a fallacy because uh, you can't just point out where someone got their beliefs and then that somehow answers their argument they presented because you're ignoring the argument they presented and you're just pointing out where they got the beliefs. You know, an example in one of my my uh, philosophy books I've seen that talks about this fallacy says, uh, you know, maybe someone is arguing, maybe someone wrote a book on uh, all these benefits for smoking marijuana, and then someone gets up and wants to argue against that person and says, well, I know this person, uh, I know that everything in this book is incorrect because 
because the author uh, himself or herself is a drug addict and and smokes marijuana all the time. So uh, everything he or she says is false. Well, the person making that argument is committing the genetic fallacy because, uh, it, I mean, yes, that might be something to take into account, but that statement, if that's the only thing that the objector has to say against the arguments in the book, then it's committing a fallacy because they haven't said anything against the arguments in the book, right? There might be some good and true and sound arguments in that book for marijuana, uh, but the objector is trying to sidestep the whole thing by just pointing out where the uh, where maybe some of the source of the beliefs came from because the author likes marijuana or, or, or other drugs, okay? Well, in a similar way, this is what's happening here, and, and I'll tell you why. So if uh, the whole issue here is whether or not God exists and whether or not moral values and duties are objective, okay? And when we look in the world, we, we can see things like torturing babies is wrong, murder is wrong, rape is wrong, right? Now, just because this might have evolved from a herd mentality really doesn't sidest- it, it doesn't get at the core of the issue, okay? Because think of it this way. If God exists and God is all-powerful, then it's I don't see any um, any contradiction in thinking that God could have brought that uh, our moral beliefs into existence by maybe using an evolutionary process. God is all powerful, so unless if it doesn't involve a contradiction, then it's possible. So, saying that we get our beliefs from uh, evolutionary processes doesn't necessarily rule out God's existence. Does that make sense? So this is really just uh, just really kind of um, just saying, well, you get these beliefs from here, so this whole argument's wrong. But it's not. But whether we got our beliefs from evolution or not um, doesn't necessarily defeat the argument that God exists. Um, even if we got them from evolution, um, then, then God could still use that. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, Whenever I was defending premise one, I was just saying that if God doesn't exist, then moral values and duties do not exist. If God does exist, God can use evolutionary theory to bring it into existence. What I was talking about in premise one is that if God didn't exist, then we are the products of evolution and we have no purpose. But God, if God did exist, he could use evolution to bring about our moral beliefs. Does that make sense? So, uh, so it's... It, so saying that we get our moral beliefs from evolution doesn't actually answer the argument. But uh, even worse, though, uh, this objection is going too far. Okay, it's proving too much, as they say. And and a problem is is what what the objector is saying is that you can't trust. You know, because our our belief that mur- uh, murder is wrong, rape is wrong, it's wrong to torture babies. These are just so self evident to us. They're they're really uh, strong beliefs that we have, right? Well. Uh, what the, the objector is saying is that you can't trust these moral beliefs because they are the product of evolutionary processes. The problem with that is that why stop there? Uh, you know, they're saying that our herd morality is something that we evolved to survive. Well, guess what? Um, that would mean that everything else we believe is just a byproduct of evolution as well, right? So even my belief in the truth of evolution I couldn't really trust that either because maybe I believe that because it's advantageous for some reason. Does that make sense? 
if if you evolve some trait and and the, your beliefs are, are mixed in with this right they say if you evolve some trait it just helps you survive so when you think about our, the propositions we believe about the world if we're just byproducts of evolution our propositions we believe about the world don't have to be true they just have to be advantageous right so i might have a belief that there's monsters in a forest near my house and that might help me survive because maybe it's a dangerous forest with all these ravines or, or dangerous animals in it. My belief is false, but it helps me survive. So the problem with this objection is that if they say that everything you know is a byproduct of evolution, uh, including your moral beliefs, then you not only have reason to doubt your beliefs uh, if, uh, regarding morality, but you also have reason to doubt every single other belief you have, including your belief that... Uh, that there is no God and that uh, evolution is true because those are just byproducts of evolution. So, um, so that it's actually a self-defeating objection. Um, it proves too much. Okay. Uh, and also again, I just want to stress it, it is just absurd to deny premise to you have to admit that there's nothing objectively wrong with rape, torture, slavery, murder. You have to admit that Hitler, Mao, Stalin, they did nothing objectively wrong, okay? And if you if you can do that, then you're in a sad place and or you're just being uh, dishonest with yourself. Okay, uh, really quickly, I wanted to finish up this lecture by talking about the Euthyphro dilemma because this is uh, something that gets brought up every once in a while. So the Euthyphro dilemma is um, something that comes from the dialogues of uh, Plato and his work, the Euthyphro. Uh, in that, in this dialogue, um, you've got Socrates asking Euthyphro uh, this question: Do the gods love what is pious because it is pious, or is it pious because the gods love it? Okay, and this uh, in the dialogue, Socrates is trying to get at uh, um, Euthyphro's belief that the gods are completely moral okay and he was pointing out this dilemma that euthyphro has and people have taken this dilemma from that dialogue and now uh, uh, tried to apply it to monotheism okay and when they do that they get some an argument that's similar to what you see here premise one of this euthyphro dilemma says either god commands action a because a is moral or, premise two, A is moral because God commands A. Premise three, if, if the first one is true, then morality is external to God and he cannot be the basis for morality. Premise four, if two is true, then morality is arbitrary and God can command anything to be moral, like rape, murder, or, or other things. So five, therefore, either God is not the basis of morality or morality is arbitrary. So this is what's called a dilemma because it's it's you show someone that because of their beliefs they all they end up with these two uh, these two consequences of their beliefs and they don't want to choose either one. So it's what's called a dilemma, right? And what the objector is saying is that okay, let's you know let's put all this aside. What they're saying is I think that the whole moral argument is mistaken because the, all of it's nonsense in the first place. And they say, look, either God is commanding do not murder because it's wrong to murder or God it, it just just is arbitrarily commanding it's wrong to murder. 
But either way, you're in a dilemma because if God commands it because it just is wrong, then that means that there's some uh, there's some moral uh, code outside of God. But mono, but us as Christians and monotheists, we don't want to affirm that because we think that God is uh, is the source of morality, right? But then they'll say, but okay, so if you don't want to go with that, then you have to say that God just commands it. But uh, but what if God just turned around tomorrow and said that it's okay to murder or it's okay to rape? Uh, it would seem that morality is just arbitrary commands coming from God, okay? Now, at first, you might think that this, this is a problem, and, and I know I've talked to several atheists who do think it is a problem for monotheism, but the thing is, this actually isn't a problem for monotheism. It really was just more of a problem for polytheism because, right, the gods were just these finite beings, um, you know, Plato really was just pointing out that it, it's kind of seems silly, especially with all the stories they used to have about how they acted, that they could be the source of morality. But here's the thing, uh, monotheism, especially Christianity, defines God as this all good, completely loving, all good God, right? So, because God is all good, that is why God commands good things. Um, Christianity, especially if you get into systematic theology, you learn that we actually think it's impossible for God to command uh, uh, someone to do a bad thing, right? It's, it's, it's impossible for God to command us to rape each other. Uh, because God is all good, it's God's nature to do good things. To, to command something wrong would be against God's nature. So the grounding of morality is not in God's commands or in the things themselves. The grounding of morality is in God. So this actually is a, a false dilemma, okay? Now, if someone got off on the euthyphro dilemma, though, and you say, well, God is all good, so this doesn't work. There's a third option that I can take here. It's not really a dilemma. God does good things because God is good, not because, uh, you know, there's some code outside of him or because he just arbitrarily makes these choices. They might say, well, now you're just defining God uh, this way to get out of the issue. Well, here's the thing. Uh, that's just how it works, okay? When we're doing the moral argument, we're pointing out something in reality and saying that this can't exist unless God also exists, okay? And we're not saying anything about, um, right? Does that make sense? Like, Because what we're saying is, more morality cannot be objective unless you have this all good all powerful all knowing god morality is objective so therefore that other that god must also exist in these ways okay that's what the argument's getting at so it, it doesn't it, it would be beside the point to then to just bring up this euthyphro dilemma and then say well you can't say that god's all good what's your basis for that well, we just gave the basis for that in the moral argument, okay? There's also other, uh, especially a Thomas Aquinas' five ways. Some of his five ways uh, can help you show that you have other reasons for believing that God is all good. Um, and again, maybe one of these days I'll, I'll, I'll make a video or a podcast on that. But uh, that's, uh, that's it. If you ever have any questions about this, send me an email or, or write a comment on the video. Um, and let me know, and, and I'll try to do my best and get back with you guys. Uh, again, I wanted to talk about, uh, bring these uh, questions for reflection again, like I do at the end of every one. So we said, we asked, can the impersonal God of pantheism be the grounding for objective morality? Why or why not? Uh, 
two, do atheistic, uh, does atheistic moral realism have a problem similar to pantheism regarding the grounding for objective morality? So we kind of touched on these, uh, just to say a couple words about it. Atheistic moral realism is when you try to ground morality objectively in something in nature, okay? Pantheism, like what I've, I mentioned, is just this idea that God is the world, and usually the God of pantheism is not a person. It's just this impersonal you know, because God is the world. And hopefully you can see by everything we talked about that both of those are untenable. <laughs> uh, our, our last two are, is the Euthyphro dilemma a true dilemma, or is there a third option the theist can choose? And the last question is, even if moral duties were objective brute facts in the universe, would we be obligated to obey them if God does not exist? Why or why not? Um, I want to leave you guys with a quote from C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity. He says, human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. Secondly, that they do not in fact behave that way. They know the law of nature, they break it. These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. Okay, so I just wanted to uh, do a quick shout out again uh, to the seminary I attended, Southern Evangelical Seminary and Bible College. Um, if you want to dive deeper into apologetics, theology, evangelism, philosophy, this is the place to go. They have many uh, online programs as well as in-person programs, and even all the way down from uh, uh, certificates and bachelor's degrees to master of arts degrees, master of divinity, uh, master of theology, and then even PhDs and doctorate work. So you can get a, ma a doctor of ministry and a doctor of philosophy um, I got my uh, philosophy of religion degree there, uh, my PhD in philosophy of religion. So I, I love the school. They're huge on apologetics, and it's a great place to go. If you are interested in another apologetic resource, a free resource, you can go to SES's website, hover over the media button, and click on the um, Why Trust the God of the Bible link. It'll take you to a free resource, about a 50-page book on apologetics, Why Trust the God of the Bible. Um, and also, I wanted to quickly mention uh, and endorse Kingdom Preparatory Academy. This is uh, the classical Christian school where my kids go here in Lubbock, Texas. It is a pre-K through uh, 12 school. It is a classical school uh, that has uh, set up in a university model where the, the, the kids go to school not all week long, uh, usually just Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Uh, so they can be prepared when they get to college. Uh, it won't be a culture shock. But it is a great school that will teach your kids how to think, not what to think. And uh, I highly recommend it. And that's all I have for this lecture. And in the next one, we are going to start talking about arguments for the soul. So I'm excited for that, and I hope to see you there.